The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 19. Baltimore, Maryland. Yusuf Abdullah was ready. An engineer for a large corporation that built tunnels and bridges through mountainous regions of the northeastern United States, he had acquired a tremendous wealth of knowledge and munitions, magnifying the knowledge he had obtained in Pakistan at least twofold. He had gone through the motions a thousand times since his initial training sixteen years ago, and his heart yearned for the reward that was certain to be granted him this very evening. The day had finally come. Paradise waited. He would win a name to be revered among his kinfolk and honored among the faithful around the world. He did not know what to expect when he watched the video footage of the devastation of so many blocks of downtown Austin and much of the campus of the University of Texas. The infidels who crowded around televisions that hung on the walls throughout the airport were fascinated by the social chaos that was occurring throughout the country. The sovereignty of Allah was self-evident. When he overheard some American infidels on the news blaming the damage in downtown Austin on the anti-abortion zealots, he speculated on whether it was true. Perhaps they were Christians who were angry about their nation's military occupation of Muslim lands. Whoever did this, your country is not worthy of you, he thought. But you are not the main event. Mohammed followed Christ. He was now in line for the search. Spurning all fear, he placed his briefcase, his shoulder bag, and his shoes on the conveyor belt. He removed his watch, placed it, his keys, his belt, and his change into a basket, and placed the basket on the conveyor belt. He walked through the metal detector frame without setting it off. He walked to the x-ray machine and was ordered by a brunette woman to stand on two gray rubber footprints on the carpet and to hold his arms out horizontally. Yusuf shook his head and crossed his arms over his chest. I can't do that, ma'am. Are you choosing to opt out of the security screen? He nodded. I read the Johns Hopkins study on this technology. The exposure to x-rays in that scan increases your risk of skin cancer. Yusuf smirked and looked down. I suppose I'll just have to let you fondle my genitalia. Opt out, the TSA agent announced loudly, causing Yusuf to flinch. Other agents around him repeated the words. Opt out on the deck! The brunette TSA agent took a step back, and a male agent walked up to him and informed him that he was to undergo a thorough pat-down. He ordered him to place his arms out horizontally, and he waved a wand sensitive to metallic objects around his entire body, and he patted him down with both of his hands. He turned his hands backwards and patted both sides of his groin and the crease between his buttocks with the back of his wrists, provoking an embarrassed sigh from Yosef. Are you done? Do you want a cavity search, too? The TSA agent looked the customer in the eye. We're done. You may get your things. Yusuf nodded courteously and walked toward the conveyor belt. He studied the eyes of the African-American worker who was at that moment studying his briefcase by X-ray on the conveyor belt. She looked tired. The federal employee's drooping eyes were evidence of a better-than-average date the previous night with her new man, evidence that the hot Starbucks coffee she held in her hand was slow to conceal. A private employee would have been fired for nodding off on such a critically important job, but she was a unionized federal employee. The worst-case scenario for her was to be transferred, and she didn't mind the thought of that at all. This was downright boring. She covered her yawn with her free hand as she examined the contents of Abdullah's briefcase on her monitor. A few books, an alarm clock, a four-ounce can of shaving cream, and... What was that? She pointed at an object and glanced over at the male employee who stood next to her. He leaned down and studied it. It's a couple of those metal ink pens, I think. But the signature's different, she said. See that? He pointed at the tip of one of the pens on the monitor. That's the button. Okay. She took another sip of her coffee and activated the conveyor belt. Then Yusuf Abdullah caught her curious eye. Looks Arabic. Is the briefcase yours? Yes, are you done? Accent's Arabic too, and he seems impatient. His lips are trembling as if mumbling a prayer. 
She paused, tempted to rewind the conveyor belt to have a closer look at his briefcase or else have him open it and test the function of the devices. But then she remembered the Department of Transportation memo, the but-for rule, about which the DOT was religiously dogmatic. But for this person's perceived race, ethnic heritage, or religious orientation, security personnel were to ask themselves, would I have subjected this individual to additional safety or security scrutiny? The DOT guidelines forbade air personnel from relying on generalized stereotypes or attitudes about the propensity of members of any racial, ethnic, religious, or national origin group to engage in unlawful activity. Appearing to be Arabic or speaking Arabic were unacceptable grounds for extra scrutiny of a passenger. Paying extra attention to bearded Muslim men from countries that sponsor terrorism was not only taboo, it was downright illegal. Stopping to search every 10th or 20th passenger in a random fashion was acceptable, but stopping those who fit the physical profile of every airline hijacker the past half a century was forbidden. The government regulations thus demanded a militant stupidity about that which common sense could not deny, that terrorist hijackers are almost always militant Muslims. The security personnel were frequently critical of the DOT regulations, but complaining was unproductive. Those rules came from the top, and to change them you've got to get to the top. She ignored her intuition for fear of the wrath of her superiors, and bowing to the god of political correctness, she reluctantly said to the terrorist, Looks good, sir. Her eyes informed him of her suspicion as she fast-forwarded the conveyor belt to the next object and took another sip of her now lukewarm brew. He picked up his belongings and tossed his bag over his right shoulder as the brunette commenced the search of an elderly Hispanic woman. The alarm on her metal detector sounded while searching the woman's torso, which prompted the brunette to begin to fondle the woman's torso as she held her arms in a horizontal position. Incompetent infidels, Abdullah whispered audibly. He had made it through the most expensive security system in the world without a hitch. How many innocent Americans had been inconvenienced, had their toothpaste and toenail clippers confiscated, and been forced to deal with humiliating searches for so many years for just one opportunity to actually search a real terrorist, yet he so easily passed through. He pitied them. Without a doubt, tonight was his wedding night, and he was excited about it. They bumped shoulders on their way to the terminal and made eye contact as a result, but neither of them even suspected that the other was their partner. They would meet each other soon enough. Mahmoud Ali was a 41-year-old martial arts instructor. He picked a career that would help him blend into the culture and that would suit him in jihad. After six years of superb professional training in America, he became an instructor at a dojo in New Jersey and specialized in close combat forms of martial arts, which emphasized getting inside your opponent's guard and crippling him with knees and elbows. With 145 students in his classes, he was making a good living, but he never forgot why he had come to America in the first place. He even married and had a three-year-old girl. But then his neighborhood received the postcard. The coupon brought a bittersweet conclusion to his secular career in America, but one for which he had secretly longed for many years. A hidden longing under a secret identity was difficult to suppress for so long to those as close as a wife, fellow martial arts instructors, and weekend bowling buddies, but he had succeeded. Those who were closest to him the past decade would never even suspect that he would do what he was about to do. Mahmoud stood staring at a television set at the terminal when a stranger unexpectedly nudged him. So what do you think about that? Charlie Starr, the young fuel station attendant from Montana, pointed at the television screen as a news reporter discussed the Texas Life Bill. Charlie was heading back to Montana after visiting his ailing grandmother in Baltimore, and the Arabic fellow had grabbed his attention. He was never one for shyness or for respecting another's personal space. Mahmoud's glance went from the television screen overhead to the infidel next to him, a red-headed, freckle-faced young man wearing blue jeans, a plaid shirt, and an oily green John Deere cap. He was apparently unashamed of his dentally challenged smile sandwiched between a scruffy, thin beard and mustache. Mahmoud looked away, acting offended that the lower-class American even spoke to him, a prince of Allah and a son of a sheik. What do they do to abortionists in Saudi Arabia? Charlie Starr asked kindly, just trying to stir up friendly dialogue with the fellow traveler. Mahmoud grinned faintly. We execute them. 
Charlie laughed so irritatingly loud at Mahmoud's comment that he drew attention to himself. Mahmoud winced at the young man's lack of discretion and wished he had not said anything to him. I'm from Montana. I was in Bozeman when the feds attacked civilians who protested the removal of the sheriff by the feds. I got some broken ribs and a friend of mine got killed. Mahmoud did not wait for Charlie to finish his story. He rudely turned his back to him and made his way to a seat several aisles away. So this must be what is meant by the term redneck, Mahmoud wondered. Mahmoud sat and read the newspaper as he waited for his seat number to be called so he could board the plane. Actually, he was just pretending to read the paper. In truth, he went through the steps in his mind, soberly and systematically. This would be the greatest exploit of his life, and errors were sure to be unforgiving. From his front seat in coach in the 747, Charlie Starr had been studying the Arabic man he had spoken to in the terminal, who sat in the rear of the first-class section on the opposite side of the plane. Charlie noticed that he did not turn the page of his newspaper once the entire 45 minutes that he waited in the terminal and the 15 minutes the jet tarried on the runway. Charlie was not traveling alone. His cousin Andy accompanied him to Baltimore to visit their ill aunt. Andy plopped down in his aisle seat. Bathrooms are roomier on these big jets. Shh. Charlie adjusted his greasy John Deere cap, leaned toward Andy, and whispered, He keeps peeking back here, so don't look. But that dark-skinned fellow in the trench coat up there is doing some strange things. Like what? Andy stretched his neck into the aisle to look at the fellow in the trench coat. I told you not to look, doofus. I spoke with him at the terminal before we got on board. I just saw him wink at the guy at the end of the row across from him. Then he made some kind of sign with his hands. Maybe they're gays flirting with each other, Andy whispered. You know what they say about these big cities. Charlie looked at his cousin cockeyed. Gays with an Arabic accent? I think that federal raid in Bozeman made you paranoid, Andy answered. Maybe you're right, Andy. It's just kind of strange. We're as strange to them as they are to us. I'll bet you they don't chew on a long blade of grass or pick their nose. I don't pick my nose, Charlie answered. Do too. All right, once, Charlie slapped Andy with his green John Deere cap. Haven't you ridden that pony into the ground yet? Andy's irritating laugh prompted Charlie to strike him again with his cap. Hey, Andy grabbed his own black NRA cap by the front and implied a threat to retaliate. Cut it out. Charlie put his cap back on and Andy said, maybe they're just speaking some kind of sign language or some kind of cultural symbol like flipping a bird. Maybe they were flicking boogers on each other in some kind of holy Muslim salute. He put his head back and expelled an obnoxious cackle at his own culturally insensitive joke. Man, people like you give us Hicks a bad name. The hostess tapped Andy on the shoulder on her way to the front as they prepared for takeoff. I'm sorry, sir, but you'll have to put away your listening device. The pilot will inform you when electromagnetic devices are safe. He pulled his earphones off until the hostess turned away and then put them back on. Listen to the lady, said Charlie. This ain't no electromagnetic device, Andy rebutted. Didn't you hear her? She said to turn it off. How is it an electromagnetic device? Charlie tapped on the earphone. You've got a magnet in the speakers, witless. Oh. Andy took the headphones off and examined them. You think that little bitty magnet's a danger to this megajet? Don't you think they're overreacting just a bit? Charlie ignored him and returned to his new American magazine as the jet began its thrust to high speeds and gradually rose into the air. Andy leaned toward Charlie and said, It's not electric, and that means it ain't electromagnetic. Do you even know what the word means? Charlie answered. Yeah, if it's magnetic but not electric, it's not electromagnetic. It's got to be electric and magnetic in order to be electromagnetic. This is battery-powered, not electric-powered. Charlie chuckled. Who dropped you on your head when you were a baby? Hold on, Andy put up a hand to silence his cousin. News is coming back on my sat radio. I'm trying to learn more about the riots in Texas. The media's blaming it on anti-abortion zealots. A moment later, Andy nudged Charlie, disturbed by a news report. Oh no, Charlie, somebody just crashed a jet into the Baltimore Mega Mall. What? He said it loud enough that others in nearby aisles overheard him. 
Baltimore? Someone in the aisle seat behind him leaned forward and asked, Did you say a jet crashed into the Baltimore Mall? Andy waved the stranger away and cupped his hands over his radio earplugs. A 747 headed for California. Mamoud, who sat on the inside seat of the last row in first class, glanced back at the second class section to see what all the noise was about. What's all the commotion about back there? A plane went down in the Baltimore Mall, Andy answered. Oh, said Mamoud, feigning a frown and turning back around to glance at Abdullah, who sat next to him across the aisle. The hostess was coming up the aisle to see what the disturbance was about when she was called back to the pilot's cabin over the intercom. A moment later, Andy was startled by another news report. Another plane went down. Where? Into a stadium, a packed sports stadium. Oh! A woman in the row behind them screamed out as if she were in pain. She fainted! My daughter fainted! Andy looked behind him and noticed the pale face of a thin 20-year-old girl with her head on her mother's shoulder. Layer on the floor, Charlie pushed the button for the hostess to come, then stepped past Andy and into the aisle. As the hostess made her way down the aisle to aid the woman who had passed out, Andy heard a radio report of another plane going down. There's been an attack on the Supreme Court, some kind of explosion. There was an audible gasp in the plane. Half of the gasps came from those who overheard Andy, and the other half came from those who saw the hostess lean against the divider between first and second class sections and grab her neck. Blood oozed out of her mouth as she frantically grasped her neck with both hands. She gasped for air with an open mouth, and her eyes were wide with horror. People were screaming as they watched this woman in agony with blood trickling steadily down her chin. When Charlie stood up to help the hostess who hopelessly clamored for air right next to him, he could see the suspicious Arabic stranger in the front of the first-class cabin with a handkerchief over his face and sports goggles over his eyes. I've got a bomb! Mamoud shouted at the top of his voice in his thick Arabic accent. He held his briefcase aloft in his right hand. With his left hand, he held what appeared to be a travel-sized can of shaving cream. He sprayed the contents of the four-ounce can in a smooth, semicircular motion around him, and a white, gaseous substance extruded from the nozzle, causing those around him to gasp and cough. One woman who got sprayed right in the eyes let out a blood-curdling scream and immediately fell to the ground, clutching her eyes in torment. Nobody move and you'll all live! Nobody has to die! I detonate this and we're all dead! Dozens of passengers in first class recoiled in fear. The hostess fell to one knee, still clutching her throat. Charlie noticed a silver pen sticking out of the side of her neck. He reached for it to try and remove it, but it had a barb in the flesh that prevented it from being easily removed. This was not an ordinary pen. With panic-stricken eyes, he looked past the hostess and saw the Arabic man press a button on what appeared to be a calculator, and suddenly the woman's neck exploded, and she collapsed with a waterfall of blood into Charlie's arms. Charlie gasped and hollered at the sound of the explosion, which left him covered with blood and pieces of flesh, as it did others in the first few rows of the second-class section. His ears rang as if a gunshot went off right near his head. Seconds of breathless horror passed before Charlie finally realized that he was not injured from the detonation. Charlie screamed as he held the limp body of the poor hostess. Half of her neck was missing from the miniature bomb that the Arabic man had detonated in her neck. Charlie laid her gently on the floor as blood spurted from her carotid artery and drained from the jugular vein in her neck. Her eyes frozen open as consciousness left her. Nobody else has to die. Let that be a lesson. Do as we say and you all will live, I promise. Mamad recited the words he had memorized so many years ago. Those in the second-class cabin were just beginning to feel the effects of the tear gas that the terrorist had sprayed in the first-class cabin. Charlie wiped the stinging tears from his burning eyes and could see the tip of another can of shaving cream and several of the explosive pens sticking out of Mahmoud's front trench coat pocket. The second terrorist, Abdullah, stepped up beside Mahmoud, his face and eyes similarly covered. His calculator detonator, Charlie could see, was in a pocket in his button-up shirt, and he had several of the explosive pens sticking out of his pocket and one in his hand. Abdullah shoved one pin under the door to the cockpit as Mahmoud assumed a fighting position as if expecting the nearest travelers to rush him at any moment. He was desperate to whoop some Americans with the fantastic zeal he had concealed for so many years. One of the pilots addressed the passengers on the intercom. Everybody stay calm and do as you are ordered. Please stay calm. 
Mahmoud and Abdullah stepped away from the door under which the explosive pen had been shoved, and Abdullah pressed a lighted button on his calculator, detonating the small device. One of the cockpit doors then burst off its lower hinges and erratically swung open. Mahmoud jerked the door open and sprayed his travel-sized shaving cream can erratically through the cabin. Everybody stay calm. We will do... <coughs> do just as they... <coughs> the pilot began to cough vigorously, and then the jet dropped suddenly and veered sharply to the right. The pilot hit a button to drop the oxygen masks from the ceiling. Do as we say and we'll all live. Everybody in first class must move to the rear of the plane, now! The gagging and coughing passengers in the first ten rows instantly complied, fearing for their lives. They trampled each other in their race to the rear of the plane. A third hijacker now stepped up next to his partners in the faith, wearing sports goggles and a blue surgical mask. He lifted a pant leg and unwrapped a padded bandage that was around his calf. He unraveled it and removed a twelve-inch dagger that had been carved out of either ivory or the bone of an animal. The blade was white and had a brown leather handle. He reached into his pants and removed a duct-tape-covered knife that had been carved out of a reddish-tan stone. He removed the tape from the knife, wadded it up, and threw it in the corner. He seemed to huddle with his sharp weapons in the corner next to the cabin door. It's now or never, now or never, thought Charlie as the first-class passengers started to trickle into the aisle, their eyes beat red and tears running down their cheeks as they coughed vigorously. Some of them had vomit on their clothes. Do as we say and all will live! Mamaud, the martial arts expert, rushed into the cockpit just as the tear gas in the cockpit began to dissipate, and he began to viciously beat the two pilots. The intercom was left on, so the entire plane could hear their cries of fear and pain as they struggled in vain to defend themselves against their merciless black belt attacker who rained well-placed blows upon their necks, torsos, and faces. Cries for mercy were rewarded with the cracking of bones and the shattering of teeth. Abdullah turned just for a moment to look at his partner in religious fidelity, whose name he did not even know yet, as the screams grew more intense and one of the pilots with a gargled cry begged Mamo to stop beating him. That cry was abruptly ended with a punch and a nauseating crack that jolted all the passengers in the plane as they listened to the melee. Abdullah was amazed at the enthusiasm with which his partner beat the pilots. Look out! Abdullah heard screamed out in Arabic. The third terrorist beside him was warning him of a passenger who lunged at him. Abdullah whipped his head back around in time to witness a blood-soaked man with a green cap come bulldozing between two first-class passengers still in the aisle. It was Charlie who screamed as he dove for the briefcase. Abdullah reached for an explosive pen in his pocket just as Charlie collided with him. The terrorist dropped the pen on the ground as Charlie pressed him against the wall and wrestled for control of the briefcase. Abdullah retrieved another pen and thrust it into the chest of the foolish American pest. Charlie pulled the briefcase free of the terrorist's grasp and fell against the jet's exit door. He screamed in pain but would not let go of the briefcase handle, so Abdullah pushed the pen deeper inside his chest. Abdullah grabbed the briefcase with both of his hands. If I let go of this briefcase, we'll all die! Help! shouted Charlie as he called to the other passengers in between painful breaths. Help! The other first-class passengers were frozen with fear, their silence and stillness only interrupted by the gagging and coughing that persisted among them. No one moved to help him as the terrorist and the hero struggled in a tug-of-war with the briefcase. The third terrorist had put his stone knife under his belt and timidly began to pull at Charlie's belt with his left hand, holding his ivory dagger aloft with his right hand as if to strike him with it. Everyone in the rear of the airplane was either screaming in fear, shouting in rage, or speechless in horror as they heard the beating of the two pilots on the intercom and watched the struggle in the front of the plane, but no one moved to help Charlie or the pilots. Mamoud had beaten one of the pilots to unconsciousness and had collapsed the trachea of the other, causing him to suffocate. The plane had begun to fall quickly as Mahmoud pulled the suffocating pilot out of his seat and dropped him on the cockpit floor. Mahmoud exited the cockpit. You must fly, he shouted to Abdullah. Abdullah then let go of the briefcase, giving Charlie possession of it, just as the third terrorist plunged his dagger into the shoulder of the green-capped passenger. When he pulled the dagger out and prepared to strike again, Charlie grabbed the dagger with one hand and held it aloft, preventing it from being thrust down into his body again. 
Abdullah handed his can of tear gas to Mahmoud and then rushed into the cockpit to grab the controls. Those passengers who witnessed the terrorist let go of the briefcase screamed as if they were all about to die. I've got it! Charlie tried to ignore the fire-like pain he experienced in his shoulder and chest with each shallow breath. He kicked the third terrorist away from him, and the ivory dagger flew through the air. The third terrorist removed the stone knife from under his belt and rushed toward Charlie to slice at his neck just as Mahmoud prepared to rain blows down upon him. Charlie wrapped his arms about the briefcase and huddled in the corner next to the cabin door. Get him, he shouted hoarsely to the nearest passengers. If they get the bomb! Mahmoud stiff-armed the terrorist with the redstone knife so he could get a shot at the American pest first. He delivered a quick, vicious blow to the side of Charlie's neck. Charlie lowered his head into his arms to protect his face and vital organs. Mahmoud delivered another well-calculated blow to the side of Charlie's head and then two hammer fists to the back of his head, but the pest just clamped down tighter on the briefcase. Mahmoud grabbed the shaving cream can and sprayed the tear gas point-blank into Charlie's face. Charlie's consciousness began to wane with the last two blows, but the burning pain of the tear gas in his face kept him conscious. Suddenly, Mahmoud felt a sharp pain in the back of his own neck. He reached into his top pocket, grabbed the can of tear gas, spun around and sprayed the mist right into the face of Andy. Andy, who had grabbed a pen that one of the terrorists had dropped and thrust it into Mahmoud's neck, backpedaled and tried futilely to hold his breath. Momentarily, he collapsed to the ground, gagging and vomiting. The third terrorist retrieved his ivory dagger, raised it into the air, and prepared to thrust it into Andy's chest when finally seven men and a woman nearest the front could tolerate no more of the abuse. They swallowed their fear and rushed Mahmoud and the third terrorist. Fists were flying and legs were swinging erratically as Mahmoud tried to block the blows with one arm and grab the back of his neck with the other. Passengers had pulled the masks off of the two terrorists as they struggled with them, so they all coughed and gagged as they wrestled and punched. One of the passengers had wrestled the dagger from the grasp of the third terrorist and was trying to plunge it into him. Andy regained his composure sufficiently that he was able to crawl around the battle that it appeared the terrorists would lose. He crept into the cockpit where Abdullah sat in the pilot's seat at the controls of the jet, and he was able to suppress his coughing enough that he snuck up on him. He raised his leg and kicked him in the side of the face as hard as he could with the toe of his right boot. Abdullah let go of the controls with one hand and tried to block Andy's second blow as blood streamed from a gash Andy had inflicted on his temple. I will blow up the plane! Abdullah retrieved a calculator out of his trench coat pocket and held it up. It was the remote detonator for the pen bombs. Leave me alone or I will blow up the plane! Andy paused after his second blocked kick and then glanced back into the aisle as Mahmoud began to push back the crowd that had rushed him. The strongest of the half-dozen raging passengers were no match for the martial art expert's precise, well-trained blows. Four passengers lay crumpled and bleeding on the floor, and the others were getting beaten back into the aisle by the assailant. The third terrorist plunged his ivory dagger repeatedly into the passengers that Mahmoud had injured. Mahmoud snapped the arm of the woman who clawed at him, bringing the back of her hand to the back of her shoulder. Bones splintered out of the crease of her elbow, and she screamed a blood-curdling cry. The passengers nearest who witnessed the bone-breaking hold began to backpedal in fear. Suddenly, Andy turned and snatched the remote control out of the hand of the terrorist in the cockpit that was flying the jet. Give me that, shouted Abdullah angrily in Arabic. He let go of the controls and stood up out of his seat and onto the back of the suffocated pilot on the floor. Abdullah stumbled and Andy swung his right boot into his ribs with an angry shout. The terrorist dropped to his knees holding his abdomen, breathless, as Andy carefully studied the calculator detonator. Three of the buttons are illuminated, he thought, wheezing heavily. One for each pen, one for the suitcase bomb. One of the pen bombs is in Charlie's chest and one is in the neck of one of the terrorists. Which one do I push? The ground in front of the cabin door was covered with bleeding passengers who cried out in pain from broken bones, lacerated limbs, and mortal chest and abdominal wounds from the long ivory dagger. One of the large male passengers grabbed the third terrorist from behind, picked him up in the air, and slammed him on his back, knocking the breath out of him. He then proceeded to beat him senseless. 
Charlie's eyes were bloodshot and swollen, his nose was draining profusely, his chest heaved for air, and his lips were turning blue as he clasped the briefcase tightly with both arms. Andy was indecisive. Which button? He looked up and saw Mamoud fracture the jaw of the last remaining brave American who had tried to resist him. The crack was audible. A well-placed front kick sent him reeling backward into the aisle as blood sprayed into the air. Andy saw the pen dangling out of the side of the neck of the terrorist, who was not in that deeply. Mahmoud finally had a brief respite from his attackers, and he reached back to try to remove the pen from the back of his neck. Andy closed his eyes and pushed the second button. A loud blast echoed through the cabin, and Mahmoud's head cocked sideways. Then he collapsed at Charlie's feet in a pool of his own life's blood. Andy breathed a quick prayer of gratitude for not detonating the suitcase bomb or killing Charlie, then felt a sudden burning tightness around his neck that made him let go of the detonator. It fell to the ground, and he gasped as he grabbed his neck. Abdullah had recovered and was strangling him with his oxygen tubing from one of the masks that dropped above the pilots. Andy tried to push the terrorist backward but was unable. He gasped for breath and the room dimmed. He pressed the terrorist against the controls and the jet began to climb. Many of the passengers screamed when the jet suddenly changed directions. A fighter jet, someone in first class yelled, looking out the window. A few rushed to the window to see the F-16 pull up beside them. This is the United States Air Force, Andy heard faintly over the pilot's intercom. Drop to a thousand feet and follow us or you will be destroyed. Andy lunged backward again to try to ease the tension of the tubing around his throat, but Abdullah thrust a knee into his mid-back. Andy gasped and dropped to his knees, his face beat red from the hypoxia. In his struggle for life, Andy caught a glimpse of the fighter jet through the side window. He dropped an elbow into the terrorist's groin, and the terrorist screamed and shouted in Arabic as the cord loosened, then tightened again around Andy's neck. The passengers began to scream and panic. They're going to blow us out of the sky! Drop to a thousand feet immediately, or we will destroy you, the fighter pilot repeated over the pilot's intercom. As the room began to blacken, Andy saw the calculator in front of him on the ground. Two buttons were still lit. If he passed out, the terrorists strangling him would certainly kill Charlie, if not also blow up the plane. He reached for the calculator detonator, picked it up, and dropped it behind the pilot's seat just as he drifted into unconsciousness. Abdullah cursed and released the tubing. He reached behind the seat for the detonator when the Air Force jet out the window caught his eye. Drop to a thousand feet immediately, or we will destroy you. This is your last warning. Then he saw some passengers venture through the thick haze of tear gas in the front of the first-class section and begin to make their way toward him into the dark cockpit. Come on! Abdullah cursed in Arabic as he tried to reach for his detonator under the seat. A moment later, Andy's consciousness returned. Gasping for air, he rose to his hands and knees and saw the wide-eyed, unconscious glare of Yosef Abdullah, the terrorist who had tried to strangle him. The terrorist was lying on the cockpit floor next to him. The pilot who was beaten to unconsciousness had awakened and struck the terrorist on the back of the head with a heavy black flashlight. The pilot groaned and bled from his mouth and nose, and his right eye was swollen shut, but he was able to regain control of the airliner and was leveling out the plane. It's okay, okay. This is, this is Terrell Savage, a uh, pilot, United America pilot, the pilot informed the Air Force fighter jet in gargled bursts of incoherent speech. The terrorists are down. Thank, thank God. Drop to a thousand feet immediately. Yes, sir. Andy sat up, still short of breath, and grabbing his throat, which had a bright red streak around it from the attempt to strangle him. He thought a terrorist was still fighting in the aisle in first class, but then he realized that several passengers were taking turns kicking and beating the injured third terrorist. A passenger in a suit came into the cockpit, dragged Abdullah out, and began to tie him up with his shoestrings. The pilot handed Andy the oxygen mask, and he took several deep breaths. Momentarily, his symptoms started to improve. He reached under the unoccupied pilot's seat where he had dropped Abdullah's remote detonator. What are you doing? the pilot asked. Andy ignored him, picked up the calculator detonator, opened the back of it, pulled out the AAA batteries, and dropped them onto the floor. He handed the calculator to the pilot. This is the detonator for the bombs. Keep it safe. The pilot nodded. 
He slowly crawled into the first-class section as some of the passengers tried to aid the injured. Some were screaming for first-aid kits, but with one dead attendant, one suffering an asthma attack from the tear gas, and the other attendant incapacitated from an open-arm fracture the terrorist had given her, the passengers were on their own. Most of those near the front were taking deep breaths of oxygen delivered from the masks that had dropped from the ceiling. A 14-year-old skateboarder was caressing the ivory dagger that the third terrorist had dropped, wondering how he could sneak it off the plane and what he could get for it on eBay. Charlie's lips and fingers were blue and he was breathing very rapidly. His lids were drooping and his consciousness waned, but he was still able to speak. Bomb, bomb, there's a bomb in here. His whispered words were barely audible to Andy. His chest heaved and he clung to the briefcase for dear life. Andy saw that the pen was sticking half in his chest and half out, just under his left breast. Tape my hand to it, Andy, so I won't let go. He said if he let go it would blow up. Help, help, help me not to let go. Okay, wheezed Andy, still on all fours as he gazed into the reddened and blistered face of his cousin. Sit still, we'll get you some oxygen. Someone stretched the tubing on the oxygen mask that had dropped from the ceiling and brought it to Charlie's face. Charlie's eyes closed and Andy shook him gently. Charlie? Stay with us, Charlie. Charlie moaned in exhaustion from his labored breathing. We'll be landing in a few minutes and we'll get you to a hospital. Andy's primary concern was blood loss because Charlie was covered with blood but the blood was from the attendant who had died in Charlie's arms, not from the wound in his chest. The chest wound was bleeding internally. A nurse on board pressed her ear against Charlie's back. She felt his pulse. His blood pressure's dropping. He's probably got a pneumothorax. Andy reached for another mask, and he put both of them up to Charlie's face. Stay with us, Charlie. The oxygen helped resolve some of Charlie's shortness of breath, but the relief was temporary. Andy had taped his right hand around the handle of the briefcase wherein rested the terrorist's bomb. Are you sure we shouldn't remove the pen? Andy asked the nurse. No, air will enter the chest cavity through the hole and the lung will collapse. We'll be there in a minute. Two F-16 fighter jets led United America Airlines Flight 710 back to Baltimore, where it landed amidst a parade of fire trucks, ambulances, black FBI vans, and police cars. As soon as they pulled into the terminal, the FBI bomb squad rushed to the plane first. Charlie was given the most immediate attention, as he had an explosive device stuck in his left chest and apparently grasped a briefcase full of explosives. He was carefully led from the jet on a mobile stretcher. Federal agents searched the remainder of the plane for bombs and apprehended the two partially conscious surviving terrorists. By the bloodied and bruised looks of them, and by the pitiful way they groaned in pain as they were moved, they were fortunate to have survived the wrath of the passengers. After it was considered safe to remove the explosive pen in Charlie's chest, a physician performed an emergency thoracotomy on Charlie outside the jet at the runway. A bomb truck idled beside them. They placed a chest tube to inflate the punctured lung. With the non-rebreather oxygen mask, Charlie's color and respiratory rate soon returned to normal. He'll probably need a transfusion immediately, one of the FBI physicians suggested. You're going to have to draw his type and cross here, the senior bomb squad agents responded. I don't know how long this is going to take. His focus was on the bomb in the briefcase that was duct taped to Charlie's hand. It's not my blood, Charlie informed them in a whisper. Don't talk, son, the physician told Charlie. It's not my blood, Charlie repeated. The physician understood him this time. A hostess was killed in my arms. The physician confirmed only a slightly elevated pulse in Charlie's right wrist. Okay, his transfusion can wait. My face is burning. Quiet, son, we need to disarm this bomb first. The bomb squad straightened Charlie's arm and placed the briefcase on a metal table. A large metal plate was brought down on top of Charlie's outstretched arm with a notch in the lower edge of the plate that his forearm went through. The plate was fastened to the table with heavy bolts so that it was held vertically between Charlie's body and the bomb, and the table was bolted to the ground. They did some scans on the briefcase with a handheld device to try to determine the type of bomb that was utilized. 
I don't see anything that looks like explosives. No detonator, no wires, nothing, said the FBI agent in full protective gear. Some books, papers, a toothbrush. A second agent was examining the clock that was duct taped to the top of the briefcase. There's no connection between this digital alarm clock and the inside of the case. Looks like an ordinary cheap alarm clock just taped to the top of the briefcase to me. The red wire isn't even connected. Charlie spoke up in a muffled, raspy voice through his oxygen mask. He said if he let go or dropped it, it would go off. Charlie was now feeling more comfortable after a few milligrams of morphine through his IV. There's nothing here. They began to cut the tape and pried Charlie's fingers from the handle of the briefcase. They carefully placed the briefcase in a metal drum, then in the bomb truck. Then they rolled Charlie's gurney into a waiting ambulance. What do you think? asked one of the junior agents in the bomb truck. I think they hijacked a jetliner with an empty briefcase with an alarm clock taped to the top. They had a sword carved from bone, a knife carved from stone, tear gas and four-ounce shaving cream cans, and pens with explosive tips, all easily passing the security checkpoint. The junior agent grunted and shook his head, so much for billions of dollars of security. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.